Medical Research Parenting Podcast. Here's your host, Nicole Weeks. We have a really special episode today. The first week of July is Sleep Awareness Week in Australia, and the Sleep Health Foundation is raising awareness about sleep apnea. This is very relevant to me at the moment because a very close friend of mine had her 18-month-old diagnosed with sleep apnea, and it's suspected in her newborn too. I've seen firsthand the difficulties this has caused, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about it. I've invited Dr. Chris Seaton to talk about sleep apnea in children. Chris is a paediatric and adolescent sleep physician working in Sydney. He's Australia's first specialist sleep paediatrician and founded and is medical director of Australia's first private paediatric sleep unit at Sydney Adventist Hospital, or the SAN. Dr. Chris Seaton has also helped to develop and run the Sleep Shack, which is a clinically proven personalised sleep treatment program for teens and tweens. You can find it at www.sleepshack.com.au. Here's the interview. Hello, Chris. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for inviting me, Nikki. You're very welcome. I'm so excited to learn more about sleep apnea. Um, so why is it important to know if we or our children have sleep apnea? Well, sleep apnea, like any sleep disorder, makes kids tired by disrupting their sleep. It gives them poor sleep quality. It causes them to wake at night. Yeah. And as we all know, tired children behave badly. They have bad learning and bad moods. Mm. And so by treating a sleep disorder such as sleep apnea, you can improve those three things, better behavior, better moods, and better learning. Right. Okay. Yeah, extremely important. Okay. Mm. Yep. And could you give us an overview of the different types of sleep apnea that affect babies and children? Sure. Um, there are two types of sleep apnea. Uh, one is called central sleep apnea and the other one's called obstructive sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. The central sleep apnea, which we see predominantly in babies, is quite common in babies that are born early or prematurely. Mm. Premature babies have premature or immature breathing in their sleep. Right. And this means that the brain control of breathing is not quite matured fully. So these babies the messages that are sent by the brain to breathe in sleep have little pauses every so often which cause the baby to stop breathing and that can cause the oxygen to drop and disrupt sleep. So central apnea is, as I mentioned, is common in premature babies and in in mature babies, babies that are born at the right time, which is between 37 and 40 weeks gestation, about somewhere between 1 and 2% of them can have central apnea. And central apnea just improves as they grow and develop, and it usually disappears by about six or seven months of age. Um, So it's, um, and we usually manage that by providing monitors for babies, um, a little bit like a smoke detector will detect fire. These monitors detect if the apnea is a little bit long. Mm. Uh, There is an alarm which alerts the baby and the parents. And um, most of the babies with central apnea are, are under seven months of age. Okay. Um, the more important apnea, or the more frequent and more important apnea, is called obstructive apnea. Mm. And people will relate, relate to that in adults because this is the typical adult apnea where an adult will snore, mm. uh, and the snoring. Uh, sometimes just can be a social noise and at other times the snoring in deep sleep causes blockage of the upper air tube. 
and uh, disruption of sleep and oxygen. And we see obstructive apnea in all age groups, in kids, from babies right through to teenagers, but the common, the very common age is between age two years and five years. Right. And that's and often how common, associated... When you common, how, how common is it? Well, in that age group, in the two to five year, so the toddler preschool age group, mm. about 6% six, 6 of kids will snore right. on a frequent basis. So this is not occasional snoring or snoring when a child's got an upper respiratory illness. This is sort of night-to-night -night snoring. So 6% snore, and about half of those, so about 3%, have sleep apnea. Right. should be treated and the other half just have snoring uh, without the apnea. Yeah. And these so the kids usually is have... Is yes. causes the apnea or are they both caused by the same thing? No, the snoring is just a sign. The snoring is a sign that parents would see that would say, look, um, there's a 50% or 40 or 50% chance mm. that a child who snores has sleep apnea. Okay. Um, and so sleep apnea is really, really means um, the right-hand side of the snoring spectrum where in deep sleep uh, a child actually sucks their airway closed and blocks the oxygen. And that's often associated with large tonsils and large adenoids. And it's genetically driven as well. So a lot of families that we see have snoring and sleep apnea within the family group. Right, um, yeah. <clears throat> So there are genetic um, underpinnings or make it, make it more likely. And is it caused yeah. by other things as well? Predominantly it's genetics and uh, big adenoids and tonsils. And in fact, how big your adenoids and tonsils get is to some extent driven by genetics. People often think it's about infections and tonsillitis, but it's not. Right. Uh, just in the same way if you... You know, if you have a granddad with big ears, you may have big ears yeah. uh, or big feet. So big tonsils and big adenoids are, are big because it's genetically driven rather than big because there is an infection. Right. And in fact, the, the family history or, or, or you know, the, the is there snoring in the family is, is a really important question mm. uh, in regard to sleep apnea. Yeah, right. Does it always come with snoring, sleep apnea? That's a good question. In, in, in all but young babies, it comes with snoring. So babies um, under a year of age, particularly the ones under six months, yeah. can have, they can have the obstructive form of apnea without any snoring. And certainly if they have central apnea, there is no snoring involved in it. Right. And this is where the family history becomes really important. So if, you, if you're a mum or a dad who has sleep apnea, uh, one in four of your babies is likely to have it or there's a 25% risk. Yeah, right. And those babies can be, you know, without any symptoms at all. Uh, right. But certainly beyond a year of age, the, the cardinal symptom to look out for is snoring. And if there is no snoring, then there's no need to, uh, to worry about it or to do anything. Yeah, and I believe in babies it can be a SIDS risk, can it? Yeah, that's right. So the obstructive form of apnea in babies is a SIDS risk factor. Yeah. Um, the central one or not the central one so much? And the central one seems not to be. Right, okay. <laughs> um, and this is why the obstructive one is, you know, is more important to yeah. pick up. 
Uh, and again, the main way we pick that up is through through the family history, you know, other people in the family who may snore. Um, and um, the so SIDS risk factor means that um, a baby with obstructive apnea, it's a little bit like um, smoking is a risk factor. It just means if a parent smokes, SIDS or cot death becomes more likely. And in the same way with obstructive apnea, uh, it's a risk factor. It makes it makes SIDS more likely. And then the more risk factors you have, the more dangerous it is. Yeah, yeah. And it rarely um, so becomes yes. likely in a statistical sense. No, no. So it's, you know, the average SIDS risk now in Australia is one in a thousand. And then if you have some of these risk factors, it might elevate it to 10 in a thousand, which is still low. Yeah. You know, it's still, but, you know, best avoided if possible yeah. or... You know, the risk can be mitigated by, you know, good monitoring um, and avoiding the other risk factors like cigarette smoking, lying babies on their tummy and so on. So is um, cigarette smoking or um, allergies, is that related to sleep apnea at all? Not not in a direct sense. So smoking and allergies themselves won't cause sleep apnea. They they amplify it. They make it worse. Okay. So, so if they've got it, then they could make it worse. But it yeah, change. that's right. So it's a bit like mixing alcohol ingestion with driving a car fast. Right. So if you've got, you know, if you ingest alcohol and you drive a car fast and the road is wet your likelihood of having an accident just elevates. And similarly with this, if you have sleep apnea, obstructive apnea, cigarette smoking, um, uh, if you lie a baby then on their tummy rather than their back and you don't maintain a good environmental temperature, then it, then all those things compound to increase risk of SIDS. Yeah, right. Okay. The symptoms that suggest sleep apnea, there's snoring. Is there anything else? Yes, there is. So snoring is sort of, sort of the number one symptom. So that's um, so so because ninety ninety three ninety four percent of kids don't snore. Yeah. Um, so if your child doesn't snore, then you don't have to worry about the other questions. But the other questions, if a child snores, our our next question is: uh, Have parents heard any pauses in breathing? Mm. And pauses in breathing in someone who snores are more obvious than in someone who doesn't snore. So because you've got the noise and then you have silence for a few seconds, which is the apnea or the blockage, yeah. and then at the end of the silence, there's often a gasping or a choking sound, which mm-hmm. is a catch-up breath. Um, so when you do that in front of parents um, and make the gasping sound, the parents who have seen that, uh, you know, their eyes light up and they say, yes, um, I have seen that. And that means that apnea then is very likely. Um, If a parent hasn't seen that, hasn't seen the pause and the gasp, it then doesn't mean a lot because that that child could have apnea but the parents simply haven't seen it um, or they may just have snoring without apnea. So an apnea that's witnessed, a respiratory pause that's witnessed is, you know, an important second sign of potential sleep apnea and then the third thing is that kids as a group kids with sleep apnea tend to be more wakeful at night than kids without it so um, it's not 100% foolproof because you can have sleep apnea and sleep through the night but most most kids with sleep apnea will wake at night on a regular basis 
That was um, another one of my questions because a close friend of mine had her child diagnosed and uh, she's been waking up yeah. for about an hour or two a night for a very long time. So is, yeah. that, is it common for them to stay awake at night as well? Or? Oh, it varies. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> some kids, you know, some kids can have sleep apnea and a sort of tendency towards insomnia. That is, when they wake, they have trouble reachieving sleep. Yeah. And others just wake, you know, we see kids who wake just momentarily. You know, they might wake for a few seconds, make a bit of noise or call out, and then by the time their mum or dad gets there, they're back asleep. Yeah. Um, wakenings are a very, as you know, a very non-specific sleep symptom. They yeah. can Wakenings can mean any number of things. Yeah. Um, and can be both, you know, either physically or behaviourally based. Yeah. So, wakenings are one of the symptoms that are sort of not specific for sleep apnea, but yeah. but still, you know, wakenings and snoring are really the two key symptoms yeah. that drive a parent to come to see us. Yeah, yeah. So, if a parent suspects sleep apnea, I guess the first step is to consult a paediatrician, and then what's the process for diagnosis? Well, that's right. So parents can go to uh, a paediatrician or, in fact, their local doctor. Right. Um, sometimes local doctors are very aware of sleep apnea in kids mm. and sometimes some doctors are not. So we we sort of encourage parents to advocate for a referral. So rather than say, do you think my child should needs a referral about mm. the snoring, uh, to which some GPs will say, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah. We yeah. would think that a referral is important yeah. and probably the big proportion of kids we see are referred by a GP mm. and then a lesser but significant number are referred by paediatricians right. and some by enos and throat doctors. But a lot of that time, the driving factor for the referral is in fact the parent. Right. who says to their doctor, I, I want a referral to go to the sleep clinic. Mm. Um, so our view is that, you know, sleep assessment is for snoring is, is a rite of passage. Yeah. You know, it's, and we do see a lot of kids who where the, the path to us is very delayed because of mm. procrastination or, or people saying, oh, well, look, we'll wait and see. You know, we'll wait and see how it goes. Um, the longer it goes, the worse the learning problems become. And mm. if you wait too long, some of these kids get labelled as learning disorders or mm. ADHD or they, they get mislabeled. And when they start school, if you have a behavioural or a learning label, mm. uh, it's, it's hard to lose it even when the flip-up mirror is treated. Mm. So we encourage early... Early, early referral, it's good. Yeah. So kids yeah. do grow out of it, but it's a long time and it's well beyond when you need to sort of get it treated. Yeah, that's right. It peaks. Um, the peak age at which we test kids sleep apnea is age three. Right. And then often um, in early school age, um, what's interesting about tonsils and adenoids is they, they do all their growing in the, you know, by age four or five and then they stop growing. So they grow disproportionately to the rest of the body. Right. <clears throat> and so some of the older kids will, um, some of the kids where we're watching their snoring but not treating it, they tend to improve sort of from school age onwards. Yeah. The little kids, the kids under four tend to get worse. So in a little kid under four, 
saying, oh, let's wait and watch is is not a good idea because they they get worse. And toddlers and preschoolers are difficult enough anyway yeah. in terms of behaviour and moods. Mm. And the last thing parents would want is something, you know, making toddler moods and behaviours worse than it would otherwise be. Yeah. Um, and certainly we see great benefit with treatment where, you know, moody, tired, um, you know, frenetic toddlers are turned into pretty nice kids when you make their sleep good, as, as you would see when you treat, you know, the kids that you treat with sleep problems. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sleep is just so important to the family functioning as a whole. Yeah, it does. It affects the whole family. And, you know, particularly we, we see a lot of mothers who are mood disordered uh, have low moods and some of them are placed on antidepressants and their yeah. their low mood is not intrinsic. It's purely based on their toddler and preschoolers' behaviours and they tend to get, you know, we see mothers who can't go out of the house because their little kid's behaviour is so bad they can't take them out in public. Mm. Um, and a mum recently rang me to thank me for getting her out of prison right. and what she meant was that she could now, the child with sleep apnea after treatment became you know, uh, a nice little boy yeah. um, that she could take out in public and he would behave in a normal preschooler way. Yeah. Uh, having, having previously been, you know, his behaviour was so aberrant, she just said it's not worth taking him out mm. because going out anywhere is a disaster. Yeah. Um, so it is, as you say, sleep is, you know, it's important to us as adults, but to little kids, it's little kids are really sleep sensitive. They... They really, really, really need their sleep much more than we do. Yeah. And and you know how we feel when we don't get enough sleep. Yeah, so right. little kids will will totally lose simple things like emotional regulation and yeah. stuff with just, you know, quite mild sleep deprivation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. so really important to diagnose it and treat it early. So if it is diagnosed... Yeah, I think that's the key message. Yeah. yeah. What what are the remedies? What, what might be suggested if a child's diagnosed? Well, the kids, the main kids we see, Nikki, um, in the sort of the toddler preschool age group um, are treated. So the commonest treatment would be, um, and this is what we find in a sleep study, if a sleep study, the sleep study shows blockage of oxygen, but it also tells us where the blockage is. Mm. And the blockage can be because of the adenoids being big or the tonsils being big right. or both. And then the usual treatment is to take out the offending blockage, that is either the adenoids or the tonsils or both, with uh, a good ear, nose and throat surgeon who's good with kids. Yeah. And then the alternative treatment, which we can use in children with mild sleep apnea, but not mm. with moderate or severe sleep apnea, is medication. Right. And there are, there are some nasal sprays that will shrink the adenoid tissue and make the, the airway more spacious. Yeah. And there's a medicine called Singulair, which is an anti-inflammatory medicine taken by mouth, which will also shrink the adenoids and tonsils. But but it doesn't cause a lot of shrinkage. So if the blockage is severe, the medicine won't work. Um, But a sleep study will will sort out, you know, what what treatment choices are best for a particular a particular child. And then if a sleep study shows that this snoring is fine, it's social snoring. There's no disruption of sleep and oxygen and those kids don't don't need any any treatment we just watch them and see how they go yeah okay that's really interesting so we've been um, using singular for my child's asthma so it's also a recommendation yes. for asthma for the same reason I guess to 
Yeah, it was interesting that it was, as you say, it was developed for asthma. Mm. And when it came out, um, uh, it was promoted as a, you know, pretty good medication as a preventer. Mm. And it was promoted as a medicine where you avoid steroid medicines, which can have side effects. But mm. we and others found that it, it did help some kids with asthma, but, but right. not the great proportion, oh. a sort of subgroup. But over a period of three or four years, because a lot of kids have a combination of snoring and asthma, those two things seem to be to commonly go together. Um, a lot of parents we were seeing were sort of saying, "Look, uh, I don't think my child's asthma is much better, but gee, the snoring has reduced a lot." So we reported this back to the company, and then did a little bit of research looking at treating kids with mild sleep apnea with Singulair mm. and worked out that in mild cases it is it's effective. So it really it reduces the blockages typically by between fifty and seventy percent. So if you have a mild level of blockage it will bring you back into the normal range. Mm. So the company was very happy with that information because it provided them with a new sort of market. Um, and I think yeah. it's perhaps better for sleep, mild sleep apnea than it is for asthma. Yeah. But it's particularly good in kids that have that combination of mm. asthma. Um, and a lot of these kids have, as you know, asthma allergy mm. and mild sleep apnea. And so you have a, a single medication that can give benefit to all three components. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm. Very interesting. So mm. is there anything else we should know about sleep apnea? I think Nikki, you've covered uh, you've covered it very well. <laughs> Thank you. I guess the only other thing is if parents sometimes parents are unsure whether whether to come and see a specialist or not. I mean, there are there are sleep clinics in all capital cities in Australia, and there's also sleep clinics in Canberra, Wollongong, and Newcastle. And I think there's no none of us mind if a child comes along and that all we do is reassurance. That's absolutely fine. Some parents worry. They say, "Oh, you know, it may not be a problem. I don't want to waste the specialist time." Yeah. And that's you know, we would rather it's not a waste of our time. Um, it's it's our job. But we do have an email facility on Sleep Shack if parents want to email us. Sleep Shack is not is not for snoring, but mm. the email facility can be used to contact us to say, you know, I, I have a child with snoring, what should I do? And we can we can either sort that out by email or by phoning the family for a chat and then we can direct them wow. uh, you know, accordingly and rather and, and not you know, not have them worry about whether they should or shouldn't see someone. Yeah. Um, one of the common questions is whether you should go to a sleep doctor like us or a ear, nose and throat doctor right. and I think in general a more conservative way of doing it is to see a sleep doctor because big tonsils and snoring in themselves are not a reason to take the tonsils out. Yeah. So uh, sometimes ear, nose and throat surgeons are sort of will actively take tonsils out just because they're big and we think that you know, we we know that about half the kids with big tonsils and snoring don't need surgery. So, particularly in young kids, I think a sleep clinic is a more, perhaps a more conservative approach. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, seeing an nose and throat surgeon is not necessarily a a bad thing. It's just that they can't do the sleep test, and yeah. and they in fact refer a lot of patients to us because they say, well, 
you know, I've seen this child with big tonsils. I'm not sure I should take the tonsils out. Can you do a sleep study? So it's often a little bit more logical to see the sleep clinic people first. Yeah. So I guess if people want to find a sleep clinic near them, near them they'd just go via their GP and they'd need a referral anyway. Yes. Yeah, yeah they need a referral anyway. Um, and the GPs in all everywhere know, you know, know where the sleep clinics are yeah. and, and would have that interaction with the paediatric sleep doctors. Yeah. Okay. Yep, so it sounds like it's really important to diagnose it early and get onto it because it can really improve lives if that's what's going on. Yeah, that's right. The earlier the earlier it's fixed, the better the results. And all these learning problems are reversible in the preschool toddler years. Yep. That is, the kids catch up. So if you've got speech delay because you're not sleeping properly from your sleep apnea, yep. after it's treated, your speech development will surge and catch up. Yeah. But once once you get into school learning, you know, some of the learning problems either become permanent or only become partially reversible. Yeah, so our, right. our sort of message is sort it out sort it out before school. Yeah. Uh, and the and yes, the earlier the better. So there is no you know, again some people say, Oh, you know, my child's only eighteen months old and they snore and I was told to wait. I mean that's mm-hmm. a bad it's it's much better to get it sorted. And then, and then you know if treatment's not needed, that's very reassuring. If yeah. treatment's needed, we, we talk about how to facilitate it. Wonderful. Thank you. This has been really good to find out more. Oh, about good, Nikki. Yeah. And I well, thank, thank you for spreading the word. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's great that you're taking the time to, you know, spread the message. <laughs> thank you so much for all your time. You, you dedicate most of your time to it. So thank you. Thanks, Nikki. You can find the show notes for this episode with all the links, including the Sleep Shack for tweens and teens and the Sleep Health Foundation at www.practicalresearchparenting.com forward slash sleep app. So that's sleep, AP, or one word.